0: chapter 8 of the literary sense this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to find out how you can volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by alex lau chapter 8 of the literary sense by edith nesbit a holiday the month was june The street was Gower Street, the room was an attic, and in it a poet sat, struggling with the rebellious third act of the poetic drama that was to set him in the immediate shadow of Shakespeare, and on the level of those who ring Parnassus round just below the summit. The attic roof sloped, the furniture was vilely painted in grained yellow. The armchair's prickly horsehair had broken to let loose lumps of dark-coloured flock, the curtains were dark, and damask mask, and dusty. The carpet was kidderminster, and sand-coloured. It had holes in it, so had the Dutch half-rug. The poet's pen-holder was the kind at two-pence the dozen. The ink was in a penny-bottle, outside on a blackened flowerless lilac, a strayed thrush sang madly of spring, and hope, and joy, and love. The clear, strong June sunshine streamed in through the window, and turned the white of the poet's page to a dazzling silver splendour. Hang it all, he cried, and he threw down the yellow brown penholder. It's too much. It's not to be borne. It's not human. He turned out his pockets. Two and sevenpence. He could draw the price of an ode and a roundelay from The Spectator, but not today, for this was a bank holiday, Whit Monday, in fact. Then, he thought of his tobacco jar. Sure enough, there lurked some halfpence among the mossy shag. And oh, wonder and joy and cursed carelessness for ever to be blessed! A gleaming, coy half sovereign! In the ticket pocket of his overcoat, a splendid, unforeseen shilling! A florin and a sixpence in a velveteen jacket he had not worn since last year! Ten and two and one and two. And seven pence and sixpence sixteen shillings and a penny Enough, more than enough to take him out of this world of burst horsehair chairs and greedy foolscap, of arid authorship and burst bubbles of dreams to the real world. Where spring, still laughing, shrank from the kisses of summer, where white may blossomed and thrushes sang. I'll have a holiday, he said. Who knows? I may get an idea for a poem. He cleaned his boots with ink. They were not shiny after it, but they were at least black. He put on his last clean shirt and a greeny-blue Liberty tie that his sister had sent him for his April birthday. He brushed his soft hat, counted his money again, found for it a pocket still lacking holes, and went out whistling. The front door slammed behind him with a cheerful, conclusive bang. From the top of an omnibus he noted the town gilded with June sunlight, and it was very good. He bought food and had it packed in decent brown paper so that it looked like something superfluous from the stores, and he caught the ten-something train to Halstead. He only just caught it. He blundered into a third-class carriage, and nearly broke his neck over an umbrella which lay across the door like an amateur trap for undesired company. By some extraordinary apotheosis of bank holiday mismanagement, there was only one person in the carriage, the owner of the trap umbrella. A girl, of course. That was inevitable in this magic weather. He had knocked her basket off the seat, and had only just saved himself from buffeting her with his uncontrolled shoulder, before he saw that she was a girl. He took off his hat and apologised. She smiled, murmured, and blushed. He settled himself in his corner, and unfolded the evening paper of yesterday, which, by the most fortunate chance, happened to be in his pocket. Over it he glanced at her. She was pretty, with a vague, unawakened prettiness. Her eyes and hair were dark. Her hat seemed dowdy, yet becoming. Her gloves were rubbed at the fingers. Her blouse was light and bright, Her skirt obscure and severe. He decided that she was not well off. His eyes followed a dull leader on the question of the government of India, but he did not want to read. He wanted to talk. On this June day, when the life of full-grown spring filled one to the fingertips, how could one feed one's vitality, one's overmastering joy of life, with printer's ink and the greyest paper in London? He glanced at her again. She was looking out of the window at the sordid little birmanzy houses, where the red buds of the Virginia creeper "'were already waking to their green summer life-work. "'He spoke, and no one would have guessed from his speech "'that he was a poet. "'What a beautiful day!' he said. "'Yes, very,' said she, "'and her tone gave no indication of any exuberant spring expansiveness "'to match his own. "'He looked at her again. "'No, yes, yes! "'He would try the experiment he had long wanted to try.' had often in long, silent, tete-a-tete journeys dreamed of trying. He would skip all the pitiful formalities of chance acquaintanceship. He would speak as one human being to another, would assume the sure bond of a common kinship. He said, It is such a beautiful day that I want to talk about it. Mayn't I talk to you? Don't you feel that you want to say how beautiful it is, just as much as I do? The girl looked at him, a scared fold in her brow, "'warned him of the idea that had seized her. "'I'm not really mad,' he said. "'But it does seem so frightfully silly "'that we should travel all the way to... "'to wherever you are going, "'and not tell each other how good June Weather is. "'Well, it is,' she owned. "'He eagerly spoke. "'He wanted to entangle her in talk "'before her conventional shrinking "'from chance acquaintanceship "'should shrivel her interest past hope. "'I often think how silly people are, he said, not to talk in railway carriages. One can't read without blinding oneself. I've seen women knit, but that's unspeakable. Many a time in frosty, foggy weather, when a eastern has taken two hours to get from Cannon Street to Blackheath. I've looked round a carriage and wanted to say, Gentlemen, seeing that we are thus delayed, let us contribute to the general hilarity by telling a story. We might gather them into a Christmas number afterwards. "'in the manner of the late Mr. Charles Dickens. "'Then I've looked round a carriage full of city-centred people "'and wondered how they'd deal with the lunatic "'who ventured to suggest such an all-the-year-round idea. "'But nobody could be city-centred on such a day and so early, "'so let's talk.' "'She had laughed as he had meant her to laugh. "'Now she seemed to throw away some scruple in the gesture "'with which she shrugged her shoulders and turned to him very well she said and she was smiling only i've nothing to say never mind i have he rejoined and proceeded to say it it seemed amusing to him as an experiment to talk to this girl this perfect stranger with a delicate candour that he would not have shown to his oldest friend it seemed interesting to lay bare save for a veiling of woven transparent impersonality his inmost mind IT WAS INTERESTING, FOR A REVELATION DREW HER TILL THEY WERE TALKING TOGETHER, IN A WORLD WHERE IT SEEMED NO MORE THAN NATURAL FOR HER TO SHOW HIM HER SOUL, AND SHE HAD NO SKILL TO WEAVE VEILS FOR IT. SUCH TALK IS RARE, SO RARE, AND SO KEEN A PLEASURE INDEED, AS TO LEAVE UPON ONE'S LIFE, IF ONE BE NOT A POET, A MARK STRONG, AND NEVER TO BE EFFACED. The slackening of the train at Halstead broke the spell which lay on both with a force equal in strength, if diverse in kind. "'Oh,' she said, "'I get out here. Good-bye, good-bye.' He would not spoil the parting by banalities of hat-raising amid the group of friends or relations who would doubtless meet her. Goodbye, bye he said, and his eyes made her take his offered hand. Goodbye. bye I shall never forget you. Never!' And then it seemed to him that the farewell lacked fire, and he lifted her hand to his face. He did not kiss it, he laid it against his cheek, sighed, and dropped it. The action was delicate and very effective. It suggested the impulse, almost irresistible, yet resisted, the well-nigh overwhelming longing to kiss the hand, kept in check by a respect that was almost devotion. She should have torn her hand away. She took it away gently and went. Leisurely, he got out of the train. She had disappeared. Well, the bright little interlude was over. Still, it would give food for dreams among the ferny woods. The first lines of a little song hummed themselves in his brain. Eyes like stars in the night of life, seen but a moment unseen forever. He would finish them and send them to the Pall Mall Gazette. That would be a guinea. He wished the journey had been longer. He would never see her again. Perhaps it was just as well. He crushed that last thought. It would be good to dwell through the day on the thought of her, the almost loved, the wholly lost. That could but have happened once, and we missed it, lost forever. Her eyes were very pretty especially when they opened themselves so widely as she tried to express the thoughts that no one but he had ever cared to hear expressed. The definite biography, dead father, ailing mother, hard work, hard life, hard-won post as high school mistress, were but as the hoarding on which was pasted the artistic poster of their meeting, their parting. He sighed as he walked along the platform. The promise of June had fulfilled itself. He was in a rich sorrow that did not hurt a regret that did not sting poor little girl poor pretty eyes poor timid brave maiden soul suddenly in his walk he stopped short obliquely through the door of the booking office he saw her she was alone no troops of friends or relations had borne her off she was waiting for someone and someone had not come what was to be done He felt an odd chill, if he had only not taken her hand in that silly way which had seemed at the time so artistically perfect. The railway carriage talk might have been prolonged prettily, indefinitely, but that foolish contact had rung up the curtain on a transformation scene whose footlights needed, at last, a good make-up for the facing of them. She stood there, looking down the road. In every line of her figure was dejection. "'hopelessness itself had drawn the line of her head's sideward droop. "'His make-up need be but of the simplest. "'She had expected to meet someone, and someone had not come. "'His chivalric impulses, leaping to meet the occasion's call, "'bade him substitute a splendid replacement himself for the laggard tryst-breaker. "'Even though he knew that the touch of the hand "'must inaugurate the second volume of the day's romance.' HE CAME BEHIND HER AND SPOKE. HASN'T HE COME? HE DID NOT LIKE HIMSELF FOR SAYING HE, BUT HE SAID IT. IT BELONGED TO THE SECOND VOLUME. SHE TURNED WITH A START, AND A LIGHTING OF EYES AND LIPS THAT ALMOST TAUGHT HIM PITY. NOT QUITE, FOR THE POET'S NATURE IS HARD TO TEACH. HE, SHE SAID, DECENTLY COVERING THE LIGHT OF LIPS AND EYES AS SOON AS MIGHT BE, IT WAS A FRIEND. She was to come from Sevenoaks. She ought to be here. We were to have a little picnic together. She glanced at her basket. I didn't know you were getting out here. Why? The question died on trembling lips. Why? He repeated. There was a pause. And now, what are you going to do? He asked. And his voice was full of tender raillery for her lost tryst with the girlfriend and for her pretty helplessness. I... I don't know, she said, but I do. He looked in her eyes. You are going to be kind. Life is so cruel. You are going to help me to cheat life and destiny. You are going to leave your best friend to the waste desolation of this place if she comes by the next train. But she won't. She's kept at home by toothache or a broken heart or some little foolish ailment like that. He prided himself on the light touch here. AND YOU ARE GOING TO BE ADORABLY KIND AND SWEET AND GENEROUS AND TO LET ME DRINK THE PURE WINE OF LIFE FOR THIS ONE DAY. Her eyes drooped. Fully inspired, he struck a master chord in the lighter key. You have a basket. I have a brown paper parcel. Let me carry both, and we shall share both. We'll go to Chevening Park. It will be fun. Will you? There was a pause he wondered whether by any least likely chance the court had not rung true then yes she said half defiantly i don't see why i shouldn't yes then give me the basket he said and hay for the green wood the way led through green lanes through a green park where tall red sorrel and white daisies grew high among the grass that was up for hay the hawthorns were silvery the buttercups golden, the gold sun shone, the blue sky arched over a world of green and glory. And so, through Knockholt and up the narrow road to the meadow, whose path leads to the steep woodway, where Shevening Park begins. They walked side by side, and to both of them, for he was now wholly lost in the delightful part for which this good summer world was the fitting stage. To both of them, it seemed that the green country was enchanted land and they under a spell that could never break they talked of all things under the sun he eager to impress her with that splendid self of his she anxious to show herself not wholly unworthy she too had read her keats and her shelley and her browning and could cap and even overshadow his random quotations there is no one like you he said as they passed a the stile above the wood "'No one in this beautiful world,' her heart replied. "'If there is anyone like you, I have never met him. "'And, oh, thank God, thank God that I have met you now.' "'Aloud,' she said, "'there's a place under beech trees, a sort of chalk plateau. "'I used to have picnics there with my brothers when I was a little girl.' "'Shall we go there?' he asked. "'Will you really take me to the place that your pretty memories haunt?' ah how good you are to me as they went down the steep wood path she slipped stumbled he caught her give me your hand he said the path's not safe for you it was not she gave him her hand and they went down into the wood together the picnic was as gay as an august garden after a life of repression to meet someone to whom one might be oneself it was very good she said so that was when he did kiss her hand when lunch was over they sat on the sloped short turf and watched the rabbits in the warren below they sat there and they talked and to the end of her days no one will know her soul as he knew it that day and no one ever knew better than she that aspect of his soul which he chose that day to represent as its permanent form the hours went by AND WHEN THE SHADOWS BEGAN TO LENGTHEN, AND THE SUN TO HIDE BEHIND THE WOOD, THEY WERE SITTING HAND IN HAND. ALL THE ENTRENCHMENTS OF HER LIFE'S TRAINING, HER BARRIERS OF maidenly RESERVE, HAD BEEN SWEPT AWAY BY THE TORRENT OF HIS CAPRICE. HIS INDOLENTLY FORMED DETERMINATION TO DRINK THE DELICATE SWEET CUP OF THIS DAY TO THE FULL. IT WAS IN SILENCE THAT THEY WENT BACK ALONG THE WOOD-PATH, HER HAND IN HIS, AS BEFORE, YET NOT AS BEFORE for now he held it, pressed against his heart. "'Oh, what a day! What a day of days!' he murmured. "'Was there ever such a day? Could there ever have been? Tell me, tell me, could there?' And she answered, a changed, softened, transfigured face. "'You know, you know!' So they reached the stile at the top of the wood, and here, when he had lent her his hand to climb it, he paused still holding in his her hand now or never should the third volume begin and end should he should he not which would yield the more perfect memory the one kiss to crown the day or the kiss renounced the crown refused her eyes beseeching deprecating fearing alluring decided the question he framed her soft face in his hands and kissed her full on the lips then not so much for insurance against future entanglement as for the sound of the phrase, which pleased him. He was easily pleased at the moment. He said, A kiss for love, for memory, for despair. It was almost in silence that they went through the lanes, still and dark, across the widespread park lawns and down the narrow road to the station. Her hand still lay against his heart. The kiss still thrilled through them both. They parted at the station. He would not risk the lessening of the day's charming impression by a railway journey. He could go to town by a later train. He put her into a crowded carriage and murmured with the last hand pressure, Thank God for this one day. I shall never forget. You will never forget. This day is all our lives, all that might have been. I shall never forget, she said. In point of fact, she has never forgotten she has remembered all even to the least light touch of his hand the slightest change in his soft kind voice that is why she has refused to marry the excellent solicitor who might have made her happy and faded and harassed still teaches to high school girls the euclid and algebra which they so deeply hate to learn as for him he went home in a beautiful dream and in the morning He wrote a song about her eyes, which was so good that he sent it to the Athenium, and got two guineas for it, so that his holiday was really not altogether wasted. End of chapter 8 A Holiday Recording by Alex Lau Manchester, 2012